Welcome to the Financial Advisors Workshop, where Brian Castle, founder of Four Star Wealth in Chicago, interviews the most successful financial advisors in America to hear exactly how they grew their businesses to 100 million and beyond. Before we dive into the interview, please go to financialadvisorsworkshop.com and download your copy of our free guide on how to find ultra high net worth clients. Let's start the show. Here's Brian. Welcome everybody to the Financial Advisors Workshop. This is the show where we interview some of our top financial advisors in the industry and uh, we get interesting ideas on how to run a practice, how to serve clients and, and how to be a successful financial advisor. So today we have Richard Abono from uh, a, um, a firm that is got lo lots of credibility. They're actually rolling up with another operation. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it, Richard, and uh, tell us about your firm and how they're changing and how you operate with them. Sure, sure. Glad to be here. Welcome. Broker-dealer that we are talking about, the RIA, is Next Financial. And of course, with the, many of the changes in the industry, you're seeing a lot of uh, these smaller broker-dealers getting bought out by some of the larger ones. So Next Financial is now being sort of grouped into an umbrella organization called Atria Wealth Solutions. So you'll okay. see firms like Cataray Grant, you'll see firms like Cuso, Next Financial, and there's probably three or four others that I just can't call off the top of my head that are now under this umbrella. And then so the I am part of an OSJ for Next Financial called Sierra Ridge Wealth Management. Sierra like right. the mountains. We're here in Northern California, so we're right next to the Sierra, Sierra mountain range, and so that's where that name kind of came from. And their goal really is to sort of act as a platform for advisors to come in, plug and play, not have a lot of oversight in terms of how to run their business. They're able to run their practice the way they want to individually without any overbearing supervision telling them they have to run it A, when they want to run it B. So that's kind of the, the whole vision of, of uh, Sierra Ridge and they've been growing very rapidly. I think they started in 2018. I joined in 2019. I was probably the fourth or fifth advisor in. There are now 26 advisors spread out across the country and growing. It seems like every every couple of weeks I'm getting an email saying, you know, press release for new advisor being added on. So they are growing quite rapidly. So Richard, all these new structures where firms are merging and OSJs are compiling and all kinds of different things, that's, that's kind of a recent phenomenon. You've been at this for 25 years and You've had a lot of experience. Do you want to tell us how you got started? I got started in the industry probably because I lived in the New York area and elsewhere I was going to college. And of course, when you live in New York and I commuted uh, on on a lot of their you know, railroads and so forth, and I was always watched the guys with the Wall Street journals reading these mysterious pages with all of these mysterious quotes, almost like it was a different language. And I was very fascinated by that. And so Wall Street just back in that day had a sort of a, a unique air and a unique ring to it, so much so that Oliver Stone recognized this and created the famous movie Wall Street with Charlie Sheen and Martin Sheen. And that was sort of the zeitgeist of the day back then. I think usually when you get a movie about an industry, typically that tends to be sort of a pinnacle of its its success and its, and its fascination in public. And so I grew up in all of that. And so that's where I kind of got my fascination when I saw the movie Wall Street and I figured that my fate is probably going to be tied very similarly to all those guys that were tied on that, tied up on that, um, that, that 
that phone bank. I said, that just looks like white collar factory work to me. I don't know that I really want to do that. So I ended up punting and going into advertising. And then several years later, when I got laid off from my last advertising firm, I got a, a direct mail piece in the mail of all things that talked about investing in, of all things, commodities. So I thought, wow, how interesting. You can actually make money trading in everyday products like orange juice, pork bellies, fruit oil, natural gas. And that sort of sparked my fascination again. And I didn't really have the resources to spend investing and learning and losing while I'm learning. And so I thought, well, why don't I try going into the business and learning it that way? Mm -hmm. And I did. So I started looking through the, back then it was the classified ads. I found some commodity firms. I was living in South Florida at the time, found a firm, hooked on that way. And that's where I got my entry point into the investment industry. But it was a, it was a rough beginning. It's it yeah. a very, very different atmosphere in that side of the field versus where I'm at now. Very different time. So then uh, fast forward, how did you get to California? Got to California because I, when I was in South Florida, I was uh, married to a woman who was from Northern California who wanted to come back. And when I started getting sort of disillusioned with the, with the commodity industry, and I started looking into the other side, more traditional investment side, and realized that Wall Street had changed. It wasn't the Wall Street of the 1980s. We were now in the late 1990s and firms were now more planning focused. And I started hearing about how focus is more having having clients for their entire life and, and maybe even to the next generation. And that was a lot more appealing to me than trading commodities where people basically would make maybe money once or twice and then they would lose it all. And then we'd lose them and you'd have to go out and constantly remanufacture new clients. That seemed more appealing. So I started looking at firms in Northern California. And back then we didn't you know, really have much access to the internet. It was just kind of getting started. But she had always told me that uh, Roseville, California, she remembered it being an up and coming area. And so she told me to look there. That's what I did. Got hired by Prudential Securities. And in 1998, moved uh, my, my wife, my two kids and, and our pets cross country. And I said, I'm never doing this again. This is the last time we're putting roots down here and I'm staying. And that's how I got out here. That's great. So you you uh, started a planning-based business. Uh, how did you start getting clients at the, in the beginning? Back then it was cold calls because you did not have the do not call rule and cold calling was still sort of the way that new advisors found their business. And I was new here, so I didn't have really any roots or any connections or any real family members that I could get a start with. So it was literally smiling and dialing and feeding, you know, have the little index cards. And, you know, if you, feed the, if you feed the box, the box will feed you. So as long as you've got cards with people's names and numbers that you've spoken to, and then, you know, you just kept that rotation going and cold calling. And it really wasn't an aggressive cold call. It was really more just letting folks know that we have a, a, an office in this area and that from time to time, you know, we get some interesting investment ideas. And if you'd like to hear about them sometime, you know, we'd, we'd be happy to uh, to let, let you in on it. And so most of the people were pretty pretty nice at the time. There was a few rude people, but most people were pretty nice and were okay with it. We also had a lot of migration coming in from the San Francisco Bay Area into this area as it is a, a more affordable and it was newer. Schools were better, less crime, so forth. So we had a lot of people that were looking to change their financial relationships from the folks in the Bay Area to the people more local here. So that was kind of a, a full wind at my back uh, moment. And, and where is your office and what exact city are you in? Roseville, California. It's probably okay. one of the biggest suburbs that nobody's ever heard of. We're about 150,000 people outside of Sacramento and growing 
by leaps and bounds. That's a beautiful area. Sacramento area is wonderful. So that's great. Um, well, good. So how do you run your practice, Richard? Uh, now that you have clients and you made relationships, how do you how do you manage it? You mentioned planning based. How, how else do you do it? Yeah, it, it is planning based. I mean, certainly we're looking at the four pillars, which are, um, I look at mostly retirement because that's the one phase that we know everybody eventually gets to. They certainly, if they live long enough, they're going to retire at some point. So I always look at the four pillars. I look at income, healthcare, long-term care, and transfer. So they're the four legs of the table and we address each one of them. Clearly income usually for most people is the most important one because how do they take their either illiquid business that they own or their retirement accounts that they built up over the years if they're an employee, how do they turn that into a reliable stream of income that will last them for the rest of their lives and they don't run out. So that's usually a big one. Then there's a lot of folks who tend to retire before the age of 65. So there's a bit of, bit of a gap when it comes to healthcare. So we have to figure out how to solve that. And then long-term care, which is always the discussion that's always the toughest to have because nobody thinks that they're going to end up in a place where they're going to need help. The, the, the best, the most receptive clients to that are usually ones who have had their parents go through it. And so then we, we have that discussion. And then of course, transfer is what do we want to do as far as a legacy? So those are the four pillars that I cover in the planning process. So how do you manage a client and then how do you go through all those pillars? Like how do you layer them in? Do you, you lead with it all at once or do you kind of do parts of it and then and add other parts of it? Explain how that progression works. Yeah, I think what I do is I headline it so they know what the four pillars are. And then okay. typically, depending upon how extensive their net worth is, we're generally going to land on income first. We're going to find out if what they've done will provide the kind of income that they're looking for. And we try to forecast everything from social security. We try to forecast taxes as best we can. And we try to forecast growth rates of what their current investments will be by the time they retire. And we try to use very conservative uh, assumptions, typically in the five to 6% rate, because you know to forecast someone growing at nine or 10%, if they don't do it, it wipes out all, all the projections. So that's where we tend to focus there. And and it, it's again, it's an intake process, just getting you know, answers to questions, getting them to bring their statements. So this way we can do all the right forecasts. And then we put it up on a one big omnibus spreadsheet that shows three buckets. One says tax now, one says tax later, one says tax never. We try to categorize all their assets in those various different categories. And then we show all the income sources and we show if we do nothing, here's where we forecast your income will look like in five, 10 or 15 years, whenever it is they're going to retire. And a lot of times it's short. So then we have to go and show how we can just move a couple of chess pieces in the right areas. And now we hit their income targets that they're looking for. So that's that's probably most of my discussions. Um, after that, then we look at the more esoteric things like healthcare and how we got that and what that's gonna cost. And then we look at long-term care, how do we build in for that? And then of course the transfer issue, that's usually least important for most people unless they have a vast net worth and they really really want to start getting legacy minded so how do people react to this program and uh, functionally how does how does it work um i think they like it because it's simple there's a lot of data on one sheet but it's not a, a 45 page financial plan which i find most clients will get it they'll maybe flip through it and then put it on a shelf and never look at it again and some of those plans, you know, they charge $1,500, $2,000 or so for those. I feel like they're almost 
they're almost like not, they're almost stale before they even, you know, when they, like a couple of days after they get it, it's just not current anymore. And the longer they sit with it, the more things change. What I have is more of a living, breathing document that we can actually make live edits and, and change forecasts and change things on the fly. So we can see that if we change X, here's the result on the end at, at Y. And so we can see what that looks like. We can we can make projections on the fly. So it's a much more living, breathing document that's, that they can that we, we have in our system and we can always bring it out and make changes as we go. Because as they say, to get the long-term right, you got to get a series of short-term events correct. And so as short-term events evolve and change, we can change with it. So they really like that aspect of it. Yeah. The sun's very organized and uh, and it, it, gives, it gives them some sense of certainty. Um, how how did how did the whole business do last year? 2022, uh, I, I uh, deemed to be one of the worst investing years ever, certainly the worst in my 39-year career. Um, how did they do? How did they do with their investments? And then how did they take it? Yeah, well, I, it, it, you know, it's going to be varied. The returns are going to be varied based on, because I'm very custom, probably more custom than most folks are. I don't have one program that I put everybody in. So it really depends. Obviously, the younger clients, they're going to be more aggressive. And we've already had the discussions that there's going to be years when, you know, you're going to hate me because you're going to see your account go down. It's not going to feel good, but that's just part of it. You, you, you don't get large returns without having the risk of like, periodically having big drawdowns. Obviously, the folks that are in retirement, closer to retirement, we have much more conservative profiles on them. And so their accounts are going to be less less risky. So the problem with last year, though, was that what traditionally is looked at as conservative, i.e. bonds, also did poorly. So many conservative clients are not happy because they saw their stocks go down, which, all right, they expect that can happen. They right. don't expect their bonds to go down 12, 15, sometimes even 20%. That is where they start to begin to get a little bit unnerved. Um, I don't use bonds as the only shock absorber. Yes, that's part of the portfolio. There are so many other things out there now that you can use that have protections on the downside, limited upside. But the important thing is that when markets go down, they stay flat. And so mm -hmm. if you mix some of those things in there, then all of a sudden you don't have such a panic because now, yeah, they didn't have a great year last year, but they're not calling me up every order going, why is my account dropping? I'm getting concerned. I'm getting scared. So it's a matter of mixing in certain things, mixing in different income sources, different types of uh, you know, structured type products, all different kinds of mixes, not just stock and bonds. Good. So do you also consider alternative investing as part of your plan? Depends on what you look at as alternative. Problem with alternatives can be is the illiquidity factor. And so illiquidity brings about unintended consequences, let's say. For instance, let's say you put a client into an illiquid alternative investment. They're fine with it. Down the road, they pass away. Now their heirs get it. And as we know, sometimes heirs are more about getting that money and getting it in their pockets quickly. The problem with some of those investments is that they don't have a provision to get that money out and so now the heir realized they were holding something that they can't cash out and that can create problems. So I think if you're going to go down that route of illiquidity, you have to have an intergenerational discussion, not just with the client, but with their kids and let them know that, hey, this is why we're doing it. This is this is an investment and this is the reason we're doing it. 
but understand that when mom, dad pass away, this is not going to be something that you can just call me up and say, I want my money back from it because there are certain time periods that you just, you can't do that. So there has to be a larger discussion around that. I'm not against, I'm not against private placements or, or, or alternative investments, but I think you have to have a real deep discussion with the family to make sure that everybody's on the same board and the same plate when that happens, because if they're not, trouble can ensue. Right. Of course. Uh, that's good advice. Um, what about things like Bitcoin and other things like that? Do you have clients get involved in that? Or are you involved in any of those kinds of things? We are prohibited from that. And so therefore I don't personally have any clients that, that do it other than if they do it on their own. And I hear reports about it and it's funny, I don't hear a lot of reports about it anymore, but I did hear about a lot of it back in 2020 and 2021 because Bitcoin, Bitcoin and all the altcoins were, were, were having a successful run. Then they had the nuclear winter of, I guess it was what, 2021, maybe 2022, I'm not sure. And Bitcoin, of course, fell off the table as well as many of the other coins behind it. And so I don't hear much about it anymore, but it is certainly something that, you know, there are very passionate followers of it and feel like that is going to be the future. Again, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence. I don't know that I have enough information to be able to say, yeah, that's where it's going to go or is, or, or the central bank's just going to create their own and wipe out the others. That is something that I guess remains to be seen, but certainly not something that we can get involved in. I, I think even the Bitcoin ETFs, we were prohibited from actually uh, putting into our client's account. So it's something that the broker dealers and, and, and the regulators just, I guess, haven't caught up on yet. And maybe down the road, they will, they will understand it better and they will be able to regulate it in a way where we can take part in it. Right now, that's something that's sort of a, a no-fly zone for us. Yes. Uh, so that, uh, um uh, very risky stuff. So uh, how do you run the business? Do you have a big team uh, that are part of your wealth management shop or, or no? Well, I, I have a team, but it's not it's not within the advisory group. My team is sort of outsourced. So if I have, uh, you know, let, let's say a large case that involves some complicated estate planning and insurance, I have a team that I can bring in to help navigate through those nuances. I have teams that help me for, you know, complicated insurance cases. I have teams that can help me for complicated annuity strategies if we're going to do some kind of a, a unique annuity strategy. I have teams for, if I, for instance, I had a client that that I um, bought on who had had an insurance policy that was purchased by another agent and it looked like it was going to run out. However, there still needed to be six or seven more yearly payments made and the policy would be paid up. And it was a million dollar death benefit to the family. So we had to scramble. I had to figure out how to take a small pool of money and generate enough cash to make those premium payments so we can get to that seventh year so that the policy would be fully paid up. So I had to look for and search for out uh, an outsourced team member who could who could do some unique equity slash covered call strategies in a, in a managed account to generate so much income that, that we couldn't get anywhere else to be able to pay those premiums. So I'm happy to say that we are down to the last year. We have actually the last several months, we have to make that those payments until December. That policy will be fully paid up and your family will have a, a death benefit of a million dollars when the mom passes away and that mom will be celebrating her 100th birthday in November. So save the day. <laughs> so having that outsourced team is very important. Yes, it is. Do you have any members of a team that are in like like a uh, uh, administrative assistant or do you, you outsource that as well? 
you know, that that is in-house. We have in-house admin. Everything we do is now paperless as much as possible. We just intake everything through Redtail. From Redtail, they put it into the system, through their Unio system, and everything is done through DocuSign. So I have a whole admin team that helps me, that, that basically runs that portion of it. Clients will just sign the forms and and that it comes back and then accounts get opened and things get transferred. And so that's all done in-house. Nice. Well, good. So what trends do you see happening in the industry that you're trying to work on with your with your clients? Is it product based? Is it is it uh, uh, you know just kind of style based? What what kind of trends do you see? Well, the, the, I think the biggest, largest macro trend happening right now is something is a reversal of a trend that we saw for thirty plus years, and that is interest rates. Because people, I think, sometimes underestimate how important interest rates are to the overall market. You see, interest rates act as competition to equities in, in a strange way, if you think about it, because in a world where there's zero or close to 0% interest rates, then the only way to get any kind of returns is to look for equities that create dividends and to do other things like bonds that create a little bit of income, but t- typically more focus goes towards equities. And what we saw from 19, from the probably the early 1990s all the way until 2021 was a, a macro a macro trend of interest rates heading lower and ever lower. Till 2021, they were almost down to zero. Now we're seeing a different paradigm. Interest rates are going up and they're offering, CDs are offering, you know, five, five and a half percent, money markets, five percent, treasuries, five, five and a half percent. That acts as competition because if you can get five percent relatively risk-free, why would you go into stocks that may or may not give you 5%, may give you more, may give you less. And so there's a lot more money going that way now than there are is going into equities. And we may see an extended period of time where equity returns likely are going to be challenged. Not to say we might have a year where we go up 18% like we did in the past. We're not probably not going to see as many of them. Returns are going to be a little bit tougher to get. So that's by contrast with this very, very low interest rate environment where equities were really all the return, was it? Correct. Capital gains were the were the were the mainstay. Now I, I I feel that the the bulk of returns now should be coming from income. Get the money now. Don't wait ten years and hope, because who knows what this next ten years would be. Nobody thought we'd see thirty years of lower interest rates, did we? No one would have predicted that. Well, we're only in year one or year two of higher interest rates, so we could have a long period of this. Inflation could very well stick around longer and higher than we thought. And so equity returns and capital gains might not be the way to get most of your returns going forward, unless you're just a really, really good stock picker. Yes. Interesting. What what other trends are you seeing in just in the economy in general? Anything that, that notable that you'd like to point out to everybody? Economically, it's tough because this is probably one of the toughest economic backdrops that I, I can recall seeing because you look across the landscape, you see technology companies, although they got hit last year, they seem to be recovering quicker. Mm-hmm. So I think the mindset is that the, the 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 crowd of investors out there feel that those are the companies that can have pricing power through this inflationary time. And then right. you see a lot of typically defensive stocks that you would think would work in a, in a, in a bad market, and they're not doing well at all. Utilities. Uh, certain you know uh, staples like food and grocery store companies. You see their 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 stocks have just been awful this past year because 
They just don't feel that they have the pricing power to be able to pass on their wholesale costs to the ultimate retail purchaser. And so I think that one of the trends may be that, you know, good, solid, large cap technology companies may be the area to tilt the portfolio in, at least at least for now, because I just don't see those typical defensive stocks really doing well. So I'm kind of tilting portfolios a little bit that way and less into the utilities and the typical defensive stocks that people run into when times get tough. I think the interest rates are challenging those companies as well as inflation. Interesting. So you do vary the approach based on the macro trends that you see. Right. Yeah. We don't want to get too cute with based on monthly and quarterly, you know, trends. It's really about the big picture. And the big picture right now to me is interest rates and inflation, because those are the things that are going to really compete against, you know, the typical equity type type polling. So so Richard, talking to your investors, what are they worried about here, like in this environment? After pandemic is over, we had a market crash last year. What are what what's on their minds in general? What are you hearing? biggest things I hear about is complaints about going to the grocery store, buying two small bags of groceries and coming out paying $100. Uh, I hear about that. And then I hear about the, you know, the $5 gas prices that are here in California. And, yeah. you know, relatively, you know, relative in other areas, maybe $4, but then they complain about that. So clearly inflation is on their mind and that scares a lot of people. Once they leave their, their job and they retire, they don't have that income coming in anymore. They only have that fixed pile of money that they were able to save. And when they see things costing the way they're costing, that just throws all of their projections out the window. Because many financial plans were done two, three, four, five years ago, predicting two to two to three percent inflation. We're not seeing two to three percent inflation anymore. And right. so that's really now impacting what they, they're able to spend. So that's probably the biggest concern. And the other concern always is, you know, risk of the loss. After 2022, they got reminded that yeah, markets can go down. Even technology stocks, even our Apple stock can go down. Things can go down. And so now they're realizing, because if, if you think about it, there's a lot of new investors that have come into the market since 2008. And so they really haven't experienced anything like 2022. So this is their first experience. And so yes, markets do go down. And so now you know they're concerned about how can I still be in the market because I want to get the gains when they're there, but I don't want to take these big you know gut punches when they go down. And so that's where I've been trying to find those type of investments, at least sprinkle in those ones that give them that possibility. Nice. Well, it sounds like you have a great plan and some great ideas to run a practice. You know, you're um, you're on the show that'll be seen by about 300 financial advisors in the next, say, 60 days, and then maybe a thousand over the next year. So if you consider that you're like in an auditorium and all those people are looking at you, what would you like to tell them about running a financial advisor business? Because that's, that's who we'll see as financial advisors. What would you like to tell them? I would say just, you know, I know there's a lot of pressure on the industry to serve what works for you, but always keep in mind first, serve what's best for the client. Because yes, we get a lot of pressure to, you know, run your practice like a dental office and put everybody in fee base because it's just recurring revenue and it's better for you, you know, and that, and many times that may be true and that may be good advice, but it may not work for every single client. So I always try to look at what's best for the client first for trying to think out what's best for my business in terms of a, a monetary standpoint. I think just really focus on the client. And I know being too customized is hard to do because it's hard to have customization across 150, 200, 250 clients. But 
thinking. You know, you, what makes you different is what's gonna is, is the little custom pieces that you put into an overall plan. That's what's gonna make you stand out, and that's what's gonna make you different, and that's what's gonna keep your clients adhere to you. Versus saying, well, why should I go to this management money program when this management money program over here might be cheaper? So you have to find your little differentiator because we are in a commoditized world. You got to figure out a way to stand out. That's awesome. That and that's uh, essentially your niche, isn't it? Your niche marketing in a sense. Right. They get the, the richer treatment as a rock. That's great. About as much as I can. <laughs> yeah, you're a real pro. Well, thanks so much. I think we're at the end of our time. Really appreciate your being with us and uh, we're all the benefit of your knowledge and experience. And it sounds like you have a really great practice. So congratulations and thanks for being with us on the Financial Advisor Workshop. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Richard. All right. Well, thanks everybody for being with us. We'll leave it there today and we'll be back again with another interview with a, a really great financial advisor like Richard uh, so we can all learn from each other and the industry working with our clients and serving the great uh, investing public of America. Um, sign off everybody. Uh, have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the ideas shared here, please subscribe to the show and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify and share this episode with anyone you think will also find value here. Please send us your follow-up questions at financialadvisorsworkshop.com. And while you're there, download our guide on how to find ultra high net worth clients. And if you're a financial advisor looking for more freedom, higher margins, and better training, please set up a consultation to hear more about joining our team by going to fourstarwealth.com slash advisors. All right. Thanks for listening. And until the next financial advisor workshop, keep on growing, everyone.